because these will be important again coming up. And again, we see Assyria here who is conquering everything. They're kind of the world power again at the time. Um, we go on to the next slide, and we'll see it kind of broken down about how they did this. They kind of just took over everything. Um, it's actually, I always find it interesting that Babylon gets destroyed by them like three times, and yet Babylon keeps coming back to harass them. Um, that's always interesting to me. And then our next slide goes ahead to Assyria and, uh, Israel and Judah. And these are the two focuses right now, especially Jerusalem, because that is the religious capital. Um, that's where they worship. That's where they go after um, to worship and honor God. And Israel, though, they had set up these different altars in Bethel and I believe Samaria, where they would worship there instead, and God said no to that. Um, and they actually raised two golden calves, which is, why would you do that? You know, why would you, <laughs> why would you do that? Uh, but people are evil. So ultimately, you had these two problems. You had Israel, who continued to follow after other gods. They continued to follow after the Baals. Um, and then Judah had the same problem for the most part. They continued to follow these other gods. They had a few good leaders, but in the end, they just... They just continued to do the same thing over and over again. So we'll go ahead and continue, though, with our verses for today. And we're going to start with verses 14 through 22. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement, when the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies, we had made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night, and it, will sheer, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now therefore, do not scoff lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. So again, uh, the word comes against the leadership. They are described as scoffers. The scoffer in Proverbs is an individual who chooses wickedness. They are individuals who have no concept of what is good, just, or right. And instead of turning toward these things, they reject those things and even mock them instead. In other words, they scorn the words of the wisdom um, for foolishness instead. Those who rule have made a covenant with Sheol. And some take this to mean that they had been following a cult of the dead. Um, that is practicing pagan worship. This is entirely possible. But it could also mean that they have simply made a covenant with Egypt. Um, and as we've seen repeatedly, when they make these covenants with other nations, they're trusting in these other nations to protect them, but every single time it leads to their destruction. So it makes sense that that would also be a covenant with Sheol because it's, it's basically, as I was saying, you keep on making these covenants with the dead. 
So as we remember, such a covenant was made in the belief that it would again protect them from this Assyrian threat. If this is correct understanding, then the covenant would naturally lead to Sheol again, the place of the dead, because they had decided to trust in a foreign power rather than God himself who was the all-powerful. And again, you could take either one in this particular instance because they could have made a covenant with some, some god or the Baals for all we know. Um, in, in either case, they're trying to trust in something other than God is the real point. But then the question must be asked, who was it that established Jerusalem to begin with? It was not the people, but God. As such, he who is the foundation of Zion, um, in the New Testament we have this understanding to be Christ, who is God. It is upon him that the foundation of the people rests, nothing else. Those who place their faith in God will find peace. And one commentator, Oswald, says it really well when he says, For the person who puts his or her trust in God, there can be a serenity and a calm deliberateness which um, is not possible otherwise. This foundation will be laid with justice and righteousness. There are elements already seen in Isaiah when describing the Messiah's kingdom to come. And as we have already seen, justice is the true foundation for any form of government in society. Those who prefer injustice or those who rely on something other than God, they will be washed away. Indeed, all things which we would put our trust in other than Christ or another than God will be washed away. The covenant, whatever form it had taken, whether with this uh, paganness or whether with these nations, it will be annulled by God when he finally establishes his foundation. However, it will not be without chastisement. The people will feel the effects of their covenant with death. In trusting in another nation or other gods, they will experience the repercussions of trusting in these other powers other than God. Instead, uh, this is seen in the way of sinfulness. Those who pursue it will feel the effects of it not only in this life and their relationship with God and self and others, but also in the fact that there's death. The covenant made is ultimately like a bed short uh, with a blanket too small. Um, it is unable to provide any rest. It is unable to provide any comfort even. So it is with a covenant with foreign nations and with pagan gods or other beliefs. It is unable to sustain everything that we want it to sustain. We are reminded of the past. God defeated his enemies at Mount Perizim and the Valley of Gibeon. So it is God will take the battlefield again. He will not be coming against foreign enemies, however. But instead, he will be coming against his own people who have been faithless and in their faithlessness have been unrighteous. Thus the warning is clear. Do not scoff as you have done. Do not scorn God. Do not be the wicked of the Proverbs or the fool, because if you continue to do, the result will be exactly what is expected of the fool in the Proverbs, destruction and devastation. And now we'll come to the final verses of the chapter. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. 
When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is a wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So this wisdom motif that we were kind of hearing continues with give ear. And this is a common wisdom expression indicating that one should not only listen, but one should also learn what is being told. This is further made evident with give attention. When wisdom speaks, one is expected to not only listen, but to take it all into consideration. Isaiah then provides an analogy via nature. Um, The question is, does the one who plow, do they plow continually? Obviously, the answer to this is no. Of course, the one who plows the ground for sowing stops uh, sowing, they stop plowing. It would be silly to see a farmer who continually plowed his field and didn't stop. I mean, it would be kind of ridiculous. I don't care what Ellen says, David. It's ridiculous. Don't do it. If the farmer does not just plow, then what else do they do? Well, they sow. They place their seeds in the places in order to produce the best abundance for the crops, the dill, the cumin. Um, wheat, barley, and emmer are all placed with a particular purpose in mind. You can see it. The question is, who has instructed humans in regard to agriculture? The answer is not the creation itself. The answer is God, the creator. By creating nature with purpose and clear design, the farmer can understand the design to bring out the greatest possible result. If nature were by chance, we would expect chance to work everything, even in sowing. You would only have a chance probability of these things working out. Yet we find a design with nature when it's um, understood by us. As such, wisdom would dictate that one does not thresh dough. Likewise, one does not roll over cumin with the wheel of a cart. Doing so would ruin both the dill and the cumin. Instead, the dill is to be beaten with a stick and the cumin with a rod. That is, they are harvested differently than other agriculture um, during the harvest. Conversely, the grain is not crushed, but instead it is threshed in a way that the grain can be separated from the chaff. But crushing the wheat, one would expect to be ruining the harvest. All of these things show us the wisdom of God. It isn't just human invention. In order for us to invent anything, it would require us to exist and that which we are working with to exist. As it is, God in his wisdom has created the world of wisdom, which can be sought and understood by us. The scholars note, and it leads us back to verse 14. Oswald, Oswald again, he says it well. If the almighty God has given both physical and spiritual counsel, And if the farmer accepts the physical as a matter of course and finds life, what are Jerusalem's leaders doing scoffing at the spiritual council? Only those who are drunk or blind could miss the implications, says the prophet. Now this leads us to our main point. In these verses, they further criticize the leadership of the people. They have continued with their scoffing of the Lord and his ways. Instead of choosing um, God, they choose their own way and leading to death. Isaiah describes it as a covenant with Sheol because of the simple ramifications of going against God and going along with sin. Thus, redemption can come, but it will not be until they have been scourged, until they feel the effects of sin. Isaiah concludes by wondering about so great a folly found in the leadership by considering nature itself. The natural world follows the course and there is life, if we should choose it. If in nature there is a right way and a wrong way to do things, then too is the case for human society, is the prophet's point. So in our current age, we continue to be bombarded with these different teachings when it comes to society, religion, worldview, and philosophy. 
We have on all sides those who would proclaim to us a better way than the one presented to us within the scriptures or throughout church history. They tell us that such things are archaic. They're for an older age. And now that we are in our age, such answers are fully antiquated and unable to fit our modern context. I can't help but think about these things, hear their words, and conclude this only leads to great folly. To scoff after what God has provided for us instead of clinging to it only leads to further devastation and destruction. Isaiah has warned us continually of the ramifications of following after our own way. Though we desire ideals such as justice, mercy, love, and righteousness, if we have no foundation for these things, then whatever we build upon will only be our undoing. But can such finite individuals, such as ourselves, truly adequately provide such a foundation? And that's the question. In the past with Israel and Judah, the leaders continued to lead their people astray by trusting in the ways of the world themselves. Isaiah shows us how the people and leadership continued to trust in the same things as the world. They relied on wealth, worldly wisdom, military prowess, and even pagan beliefs. This last concept of paganism basically meant that their entire reality was based on the natural elements. The wind blowing, the sun shining, and even sexuality. In these ways, they found their understanding of the world making the natural elements of the worlds into gods, which they not only placed their trust in, but also their entire understanding of reality. Have the ways of the world changed since then? In some ways, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? In nature, we are able to see things um, in a very simple way. You do something in nature, and you will have ramifications for it. There is a cause and effect. Because of this, we can find what is the best way to do things and bring about the best results. Isaiah describes it perfectly in today's text. It does not make sense to thresh grain forever. It doesn't make sense to utterly crush cumin or dill. But there is a right way to do it in order to bring about the greatest possible result. So in one sense, there is a reasonableness to looking at nature for some signs of order in the chaos. Yet the way they understood nature failed to accomplish this. Today, we find the same thing occurring. There are those who are looking toward nature to decide what is good and bad, what is right and wrong. Whether it be nature or how we feel. The question is, can our feelings alone give us a sense of rightness and wrongness? If so, how? Is it any different than the sun shining or the wind blowing? Are our feelings and our experiences simply part of being human? If so, can they truly be a solid foundation for ethics, morality, and goodness itself? When it comes to nature, can nature provide an adequate foundation for these things? Does the wind tell us what is good? Does the sun? Also, how would we know which part of nature shows us what is good? Is in the animal nature, um, when the lion indifferently rips apart the lamb, the prey, is that good? Perhaps it is good to be the prey instead. Perhaps when certain apes attack other apes and devour them, that's good. Does the insane man have a better view of the world in which we should also have? What of this is considered good and should be followed? Is nature all there is to inform us of these things? If nature is all that there is, then the ultimate answer in my view is no. Unfortunately, the naturalists and the materialists continue to promote these things because of Darwinism 
and Darwin's thought. Survival of the fittest is the only possible way to come upon what is good or evil. But if that's the case, it only means that one with the greatest power is the most fit and deserves to survive. Things like love do not even come into question because in the end, it is only about survival. If I am able to survive without love, then the more power to me, so to speak. The same with all virtues, such as justice, mercy, kindness. Same too with what is evil and vices. If I am able to become the fittest by being evil and therefore increase my survivability, then evil can be considered good since the results are about bringing the greatest possible conclusion under this view. Now to me, there, there's more that must exist in order for these things to be experienced by us, these virtues. Nature, just as Isaiah proclaimed, tells us of God's wisdom in the world. She has been set up with rules and laws which we can utilize in this world to understand God's wisdom. We see the results when we seek to change or break nature's laws. It always leads to something um, rather irrational. It leads to something more broken than was before. When we seek to supplant nature's laws, we end up causing incredible harm to the environment and to ourselves. Nature can only tell us one form of good and evil, and that is in regards to itself. It will, as the prophets say, speak out against the evil committed on it and against it. Yet again, it doesn't tell us anything about what is good or evil, right and wrong, apart from itself. Is there a reason for this? I believe so. The reason nature fails to provide an adequate answer to the questions of what is good or evil overall is because these concepts are in the realms of reason. Nature itself cannot reason. It simply does according to the laws. In order for us to have a law which tells us what is good and evil, it would require something beyond nature to tell us the answer. Nature tells us a lot. It tells us many things about wisdom and about God, but it cannot tell us what is ultimately good. Where the pagans and the naturalists get it wrong then and today is that nature is not our mother, but more like our sister. She, like us, has been created with purpose and meaning. She reminds us there is a right way for her, and because of that, urges us to consider the right way for us. So in contrast to what the world tells us today, and what the world has been telling us for as long as the world has existed since the fall, we have what has been handed down to us throughout church history. That we have been created in the image of God. And in being made in his image, we are able to reason through our experience and understand the difference between right and wrong. We have been able to discern that there are ought and ought nots. This does not stem from us, but from the wise one who has created us in his image. It is the same creator of the natural realm which we have experienced, that which causes the farmer to be able to sow and to harvest. They are able to do this because of the creator. He has brought about this world with wisdom and being in his image. We are able to perceive this wisdom and live within it. This divine wisdom, which we can experience in nature, is called general revelation. He has revealed himself throughout all of nature, and we find this in Romans 1 especially. Now, it could be enough for God to simply allow his wisdom throughout creation. Yet he also reveals himself and his ways to us through his special revelation. Such special revelation is in the scriptures. The prophetic word given to us in order to teach us about who God is and also who we are. Indeed, it is in the pages of scriptures 
we learn about what God has done in history. It is also here where we learn of what we ought to do to bring about the best possible world. It is only because God exists such an overarching understanding is available to us. God in existing and in speaking to us gives us what we need to have for life. It shows us what leads to goodness and shows us what is evil. It is our intellectual law which if followed will lead to a better world but if disobeyed will lead to chaos and destruction. The world continues to offer us, however, the same thing it offered those in Isaiah's time. They were not the only ones to experience the world, nor be tempted by its power. We, too, are susceptible to such temptation. And there are many who continue to trust and rely on the world and its power and its understanding. This means we have to be careful. It means that we are no less vulnerable to be a people who follow after the ways of folly, to make a covenant with Sheol, which proclaims to provide life, yet only brings death. We can be easily deceived into believing that the ancient truths, which have been established for thousands of years, are so old as to have no bearing anymore. Yet if we are experiencing the same temptations, and it is the same old world and the same world powers which we contend, then it seems far more likely than not that the ancient truths are not just true for the ancients, but true for us as well. For it tells us of the struggle which we experience within our souls to follow after God or to follow the ways of the world. To follow God is to be led into life. To follow the world is to be led into death. To ignore Isaiah today, to ignore what was written so long ago today, would be akin to ignoring it when it was first proclaimed. Because if the criticisms and the warnings and the wisdom of Isaiah and the rest of the scriptures proclaimed to us are truly dealing with the same issues we experience today, then the criticisms, warnings, and the wisdom are all as valid today as it was then. Thus, to spurn the prophets, to spurn what has been handed down to us, is to act no better than the ancients who scoffed at the message of old and ignored the pleading to turn from death to life by placing our faith in God. Because this is the way of truth. When we make statements which are true, they are true regardless of the time we take them and make them. I could say murder is wrong today, and it will still be wrong tomorrow. I could say idolatry is wrong today, and it will still be wrong tomorrow. I can say sin is wrong today, and it will still be wrong tomorrow. Conversely, I could say love is good today, and that it will be good tomorrow. I can say honoring God is good today and it will be good tomorrow. I can say seeking justice in society is good today and it will also be good tomorrow. The oughts and the ought nots do not change. Sure, cultures change. Societies change. But what is good and what is wrong do not if God exists. Thanks be to God that he does. And thanks be to God that we know the truth and that we can proclaim the truth to each other and the world. We can be confident to do this because we have experienced God and know his goodness and in knowing his goodness, know that to trust in him is better than to trust in the world. He has provided for us all that we need. He has given us a world full of wisdom where we can cultivate the earth and bring forth its fruit. He has shown us repeatedly with each passing day, each moment, each breath we breathe that he is wise. If we trust him in these things, why should we cease to trust him in the rest? So be courageous. 
From the time we are in need of individuals who are like Isaiah, who are willing to proclaim the truth, as well as live out the truth with which they can proclaim. The world is in chaos and in a constant flux with sinfulness abounding on all sides. It is our responsibility, our duty, to remember that what has been passed down and to proclaim this as the truth, not for an age, but for all ages, that our God lives, our God speaks, and our God redeems. Because if we do not, and if we should turn away from what we have learned, we will find ourselves no different than the ancients. Those same who willingly spurn God's truth for their own truth, scoffed at God while embracing the world, and who only did what was right in their own eyes. If we should ignore all that has come before, then we shall find ourselves joining them in such great folly. And so we find ourselves with the gospel, I think. Um, We find ourselves, I think, in Isaiah's passage, reminding us that the gospel is a true and living thing. It is found in Christ. But in order for us to understand the gospel requires us to go back to the beginning. That there is a creator to all this, isn't there? It's not as though something came from nothing. Nothing comes from nothing. Something had to have come from nothing. No, nothing comes from nothing. In order for there to be something, there has to have been something else for something to come from. (laughs) You can chew on that for a while. (laughs) Still though, the origins of the universe are found in God. He created this universe. And so we can expect to find traces that he has been the creator. We can expect in nature to look at it and to reason with it and say, you know what, this doesn't look like it's here by chance. This looks like it was purposefully designed for a purpose. And as it is, we do find that in nature. If Mike were here, I'd talk to him about trees for a moment because he could tell us all about the trees. And he looks at it and he thinks how wonderful and amazing it is that the tree is, of all things, trees, right? And if they're so wonderful, imagine going outside on a nice night and looking at the stars, looking at this universe, the galaxies upon galaxies, billions of them. And God created it with a purpose in mind. But, even as you do, remember to look back at yourself because he didn't say it's in the stars or in the universe or in the cosmos or in those galaxies that his image lies. It's under your roof. It's in your soul. That's where his image lies. Because as nature teaches us, nature just does what the law tells it to do. We have the ability to choose. And it's that ability to choose which allows us so much goodness, love itself, but also so much chaos and evil. But it is also true that because of that, I mean, that's why humanity is so wonderfully made. And intrinsically, it has worth to be a human being. The problem is, of course, is that we do choose evil. I mean, as we see in these chapters, the people of God continue to choose other gods. And I I love it, because Chris and I talk about this often. She always, whenever she's reading the Old Testament, she just stops eventually and just shakes her head and says, what were they thinking? And I just respond back, probably what they think of us a lot of the times. (laughs) You know? What are you thinking, world? (laughs) They would probably look at us and think, really, you're doing that? I know they would. There's probably a lot of them that would do that anyway. Because we're sinful. Because we're broken. Because we continue to choose evil and to disrupt what is good. We do this because of sin. And we deserve judgment just as they deserve judgment. We deserve the scourge of death. 
Everyone falls under that. Because God is so holy. And sometimes we forget how great God is. Sometimes we forget his majesty. That even one sin in the garden was enough. Yet we sin so much more. And so the question is for each of us, how can we be redeemed with such a holy and wonderful God as this? A God who cannot have sin, even around him. And the answer is through redemption found in Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is our redemption. And through his life, death, and resurrection in time, space, history, and flesh, we are redeemed by faith. And all that Isaiah proclaimed, turn, turn, turn. There was one who never strayed, and that was Jesus. He always followed the course, even unto death. And if we place our faith in him, then we find redemption. All the righteousness that he attained is ours. And all the sin that we have accumulated is washed clean as with a hailstorm. And so we do experience death. But it is a small thing in compared with eternity that we have in Christ. This whole life, when you really consider it, all the struggles, all the ups and downs, all the times that we fail, all the times that we feel so miserable, or as David sometimes says, oh, oh. <laughs> all those times, yeah, right in here, if you're only looking right here, it's a lot. But if you realize you have a starting point here and it goes on forever in that direction, right here becomes increasingly smaller in the grand scheme of things. Because that's what we're looking at. We're looking at forever. And it's found in Christ. And that's where our hope lies and that's where it's leading into glory. And all the sinfulness of this world is going to be done once and for all. And we experience the first fruits of it in Jesus. And for those who believe, isn't it such a beautiful thing? Isn't it such a nice thing to be able to say, Christ lives today and I know him. And doesn't that just in that moment give you so much peace, even in this world? And to have that forever is what we're looking forward to. So, be encouraged to keep on listening to Isaiah's call, because he's calling to us today. Our world is very different, not different, really. You strip away a lot of the technology and stuff, and it's the same. <laughs> the same ideas, the same sinfulness, the same beliefs, over and over and over again. That's what makes Christ so important, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is through him we find life. We thank you that it is through your wisdom that we can perceive this world and know your reality. That it's not something that we have to make up on our own. But it's something that you have given us freely. And so Lord, we ask that you would give us further wisdom to seek after you. To look around us sometimes and remember and be in awe. Not just in the creation but in the creator. Because Lord, you have given us eyes, you have given us ears, you have given us these experiences so that we can know you more. So Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for all that you have accomplished. In your son's name we pray.
Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.